The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. Today we're in Jonah chapter 3, and as we near the final verses of Jonah chapter 3, there is a Hebrew word that's translated turn or return, and it's used four times at the end of chapter 3. I think it's the climax and the theme of chapter 3, and that's why I've titled today's sermon, Turning to God. Jonah chapter 3 is about turning to God. To remind you where we've been, Jonah chapter 1 was titled, Running from God. The word of the Lord came to the prophet Jonah, and instead of commissioning out, he ran as far as he possibly could away from God's word and God's call on his life. Jonah chapter 2, we called crying out to God, because after Jonah stubbornly and selfishly resisted God, in self-resignation, he sort of chose assisted suicide, and as he was drowning to the depths of the ocean, finally his stubbornness broke and he cried out to God. But today's title is turning to God. And if you're using the Pew Bible, page 921 is where you'll want to join us, page 921 in the Pew Bible. Today's sermon, Turning to God from Jonah 3, 1 through 10. Let me give us sort of four kind of catechism questions up front that I wrote to help us kind of get at today's text to kind of simply give us the lay of the land. Here's the first one. Who needs to turn? The answer is everyone. So far in Jonah, we've seen the sailors need to turn. Surely, violent and oppressive Nineveh needs to turn, but also stubborn believers like Jonah need to turn. To whom do we need to turn? God. God who is the creator over all, God who sees all, God who cares for all, as Jonah will teach. Why must we turn? And the answer we've seen throughout Jonah so far is because we have a selfish, stubborn sin problem that causes us to resist the God who loves us, to resist his word, to resist his call, to resist his presence, at least in parts of our life, that we find it uncomfortable or unwelcome. Well, what happens when we turn? If we will. Well, that's what Jonah 3 is about. So I'm going to leave that question hanging. So Jonah 3, 1 through 10 is essentially answering what happens if we will turn. And let's begin in Jonah 3, verse 1. We'll go slowly now through the text. And verse 1, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. In the original, all the verbs here from God are in the imperative. He is strongly recommissioning Jonah. The message is exactly the message that God tells him. But I want to rejoice again with you this morning that he says a second time. Let us praise the Lord that God has recommissioning grace even to believers who have blown it. I mean, aren't you glad that God gives second chances and more? Warren Wearsby writes, you don't have to read very far in the Bible to discover that God forgives his servants and restores them to ministry. Abraham fled to Egypt where he lied about his wife, but God gave him another chance. Jacob lied to his father Isaac, but God restored him and used him to build the nation of Israel. Moses killed a man and fled from Egypt, and God called him to be the leader of his people. Peter denied the Lord three times, but Jesus forgave him and said, follow me. Aren't you glad 
that God gives second chances. I want you to notice not only does God give second chances, but God remains sovereign even in that recommissioning. The text is really clear, isn't it, in verse 2? Jonah wants, God wants Jonah to understand it'll be God's message that Jonah needs to tell. In fact, in the original, the pronouns are added to make it very, very clear. God wants Jonah to say what God wants said, not what Jonah wants said. Now, in verse 1 and 2, we probably know the rest of the story. We know how Jonah 4 gets, but don't jump ahead there yet. Because wherever he was put on dry land, the trip to Nineveh would have taken a long time because it's pretty far inland to traverse. So Jonah probably has months to think over this message, and he does not know the outcome. The reminder for us, of course, is to just faithfully trust what God has said, even when we don't know the outcome, to faithfully share what God has said, even though we don't know the outcome. Just a word, I want to ask you to pray with me as a pastor, something I'm praying about and have prayed about since I've come here. Would you pray with me, please, that God will make us a church that sends and commissions people to proclaim the word of God. Pray that with me, please. And pray that the people we send will proclaim the message as Jonah, but prayerfully more than Jonah, will not just proclaim it in action, but also in affection. That they will not just know the word, but that they will have a heart like God's heart. I mean, because really, what good is our learning if we don't feel wonder at the mercy and grace of our God. So pray that we're a church that sends and sends people with God's heart. Now, Jonah in chapter one is running. He's running away. But now here in chapter three, he's a runner. Because in the ancient world, a messenger is a runner. Think Hermes, the runner to the fictitious Greek gods. His job as a messenger is to be a runner. Jonah was running. Now he's a runner. God has a great history of taking people who were running away from him and sending them as runners for him. Think of Saul who became the apostle Paul. He's running the wrong way on the wrong road. And then the risen Jesus Christ stops him, turns him to make him a runner of a better message. Paul will later write in Philippians 3 that I have been apprehended or I've been caught, run down by a person for whom I now run pressed towards the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That leads us to the question here. All right, God has commissioned Jonah a second time, but what will Jonah do? Well, verse 3 and 4, Jonah obeys. Let's continue now in verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Praise God. Now, Jonah was an ex- now, sorry, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. Jonah obeys exactly to the letter what God has told him to do, which, which is a good thing. In the Hebrew, it's very easy to see, but even in English, it's easy to see. Exactly what God said in verse 2, Arise, go, and call out, are exactly what the words are in verse 3 and 4. Jesus, or Jonah arises, Jonah went. Jonah calls out. He does precisely what the Lord has called him to do. But now we see in verse 3 and 4 that God again stresses the size, the density of Nineveh. It's largesse. Look in verse 2. God calls it that great 
city. In verse 3, he says it's an exceedingly great city. In Hebrew, actually, it's, it's Elohim great. So it's, it's a God-sized city or God-sized heart, perhaps, for it, is if it's a double entendre. This is a huge place. This dense place is so big that it's described as three days' journey in breath. Scholars debate what that means. Is he talking about the circumference of the city? If we use modern terms, the the metro area of Nineveh is 55 miles, which would be a three days journey. The downtown is only about five miles. Maybe three days journey means it took three days to go through all the proper ambassadorial channels to meet with the right officials to get to the point where you could speak. In any case, the point is its size was immense. So here's Jonah, and he's obeying at least an action though not in affection. By the time we get to chapter 4, we'll, we'll see that Jonah's obedience needs to reach the heart. But what is the heart that Jonah is missing? And I want to show you here from the Bible. The heart that Jonah is missing already in chapter 3 is God's heart for people densely packed in a place. God's heart for people densely packed in a place. Did you notice that God kept saying that this city is a great city? In fact, he'll say it several times in the book. Jonah 1, 2, the city is great in size. Jonah 3, 2, and 3, it's great in size. Jonah 4, 11, this city is great in size. There are over 120,000 souls in it. In Isaiah 19, 25, God will say about Assyria that Assyria is his handiwork. So if God cares about people densely packed in a place I want to talk to you about how densely packed Raleigh is, perhaps you've noticed. (laughs) We live in a densely packing place full of moving and transitioning people. Raleigh this year will come very, very close to 1.6 million people in our metro area. I have several pastor friends that I meet with semi-regularly, and there's a couple large churches in North Raleigh that are blessed to have enough pastors on staff that they have pastors just devoted to missions. And those pastors are a great blessing to us because they do a lot of research. Here's the research of some of my friends. I'll connect you with them if you'd like to go into this research further. Between 2010 to 2020, the Raleigh MSA, Metropolitan Statistical Area, grew 23%. So if you're someone that's noticed the buildings, let me give you more data to back up what you have learned by osmosis and anecdote. In that time, Raleigh is the second fastest growing population in the entire nation. But at that same rate, here's what you haven't heard on the news. The rate of people who have grown as evangelicals, and I want to be very, very clear, I am not talking about Baptists. I'm talking about anybody who says that they believe in the good news of Jesus. So over 10 years, the population grew by 23%. And in that same time, those who say they believe in Jesus grew by 1.5%. So in our broader area, if you add in Durham, we're adding more than 93 souls a day. And yet over that 10-year period, when you take the expanding population and the minimal growth of those who are Christians of any denomination, that means on the whole, Raleigh-Durham has lost 3.5% believers over that 10-year period. In fact, just Wake County has lost 9%. So let me explain what that means. The data that our brothers have done, here's how it, it prognosticates. If those trends continued in 40 years, 
Raleigh would be 2.4% evangelical. Not Baptist, not Methodist, not Episcopalian. All of them combined. Anybody who says, I believe in Jesus, would be 2.4%. Let me put that in context for you. On Wednesday, we had missionaries here. Uh, Ukrainian, who's in Poland. A Russian, who's in Belarus. A Moldovan, who's in Kazakhstan. If you can remember all those nations, I'll be really, really impressed. Those nations are between 1% to 3% evangelical. Raleigh would be right in the middle of those. So how could that change? Let me tell you the, the, the data. If we just got back to where we were before 2010, which was one in five people would say they were a Christian, here's what that would take just to get back to water level. It would take 6,800 new Christians per year. That'd be, 100, that'd be 68 churches that have 100 new believers per year. If we wanted to get more than water level, if we, if we prayed, God, would you grow us at just 1% over a year so that the averages got closer? Here's what it would take. 27,596 new Christians per year. So here's what I want to press with you today. And I'll say more about this in the weeks ahead, Lord willing. God cares about people packed in places because God cares about souls. I believe then that God cares about Raleigh and God cares that the gospel is here. So Christians at Emmanuel, particularly inside the Beltline, I want to encourage you to pray, to proclaim, and to consider putting down roots in a place where God is sending many, many people to a place where they need to hear about Jesus because apparently very few of them have heard about his name. Let us not then be greedy with the grace we have received. Let us pray about how we can proclaim it in a place that if you were from the other side of the world, you would strategize how to plant more churches here. All right. Am I alone on that? Does anyone else agree? All right. Thank. I feel better now. Thank you. All right. Verse 4 continues something else that... um, is also applicable for Raleigh. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I did slowly translate the text. Something popped out to me that blew my mind. In verse 4, I want you to see the message God gave to Jonah. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. But the, the verb for overthrown is a reflexive verb. Here's what that means. It means Nineveh is the cause of its own demise. Even if God judges it, it's a self-inflicted demise. Because cities tend to destroy themselves unless God's grace intervenes. See, it's a self-inflicted descent, and yet only the mercy and grace of God can overcome it. And yet the messenger that they are sent is a rather sour one, sharing a very succinct message. In Hebrew, it's only five words long. In English, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. One scholar writes about Jonah. Jonah had just experienced the unmerited grace of goodness of God in his own life. And now he turns and makes it as difficult as possible for the Ninevites to experience God's same grace. This is a graceless messenger in the shadow of abundant grace. But here's what I want you to see. Even though Jonah is a pretty sour messenger, actually the message from God is gracious. Let me explain that. 
Here's how God is being gracious. First of all, God is sending someone to them. By sending Jonah, it is an opportunity to hear about their need to turn. But also look at the the message. The message indicates a possibility of grace because it says, yet 40 days. Haven't you noticed in the Bible how often 40 days is like a timeline used to the completion of God's plan? The ark gets 40 days. The people wander 40 years. Jesus fasts for 40 days. It's a way of saying when it hits God's timeline and it's done, then God's going to act. But you have time. See, God's grace is given even in the message, even though they have a sour messenger. But by the end, here's what we'll see. God's word will do God's work by God's power. Even the messenger's motives can't manipulate the power of the message. God is able to do what God does. I want to lean into that even further to make this point. Many preachers, when they get to this point in Jonah, they start to talk about how Jonah must have had a bizarre appearance because he would have been in the fish and probably bleached by acidic acid. That's a very interesting speculation that the text says nothing about. The text says nothing about Jonah's appearance at all. The closest clues we get in chapter 4, 5, and 6 is that Jonah maybe was bald because he didn't want the gourd to no longer cover his head. We learn nothing else. Here's why I'm pressing that point to you. If we get excited about things that are not recorded in the text, but things that are part of our speculation, we will miss the point of the text. You see, don't you get this? The reason that Nineveh will have the outcome that it has is not because of the appearance of the messenger, but because of the power of the message. It will not because the messenger had this amazing impact, but because God's powerful word accomplished God's good purpose, you see. It's not about man's powerful impression, but God's powerful word. One commentator named Elul wrote this, Jonah did not become free to select for himself what he would say to the Ninevites. He did not go to tell them about his experiences. He did not decide the content of his preaching. Similarly today, our witness is fast bound to the word of God. The greatest saint or mystic can say nothing of value unless it is based solely on God's word. Isn't it great God sends Jonah not to tell about his time in the fish, but instead God's time for repentance. The power's in the message, not the messenger. And now see what will happen with such a succinct message. Look in verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Did you notice the contrast in the speed with which they received God's message? Jonah's given God's message and goes as far as he can to get away from it. God is so good that God pursues a stubborn sinner and he pursues him all the way to the depths of the ocean. And then finally, after immense pressure and time, Jonah reluctantly turns. But here, violent pagan polytheists turn immediately, just like the sailors did. 
Can I show you how immediately they turn? Okay, look in verse 3, right? The end of verse 3. Nineveh is a three days journey in breath. It would take time for the message to get there. But look in verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. He was only one day in. And they've repented. He's one third of the way through. And they finished sharing the word on their own. Not through his evangelism. I want to point out even more remarkable elements to you. The word believed is an intensive verb, saying they threw their trust on God. Even though Jonah has given them little hope or help. You'll notice in chapter 3, unlike the sailors who call God Yahweh in chapter 1, but how did the sailors know Yahweh was his name? Well, because Jonah gave him that. But Jonah doesn't give the Ninevites that, and so they have very, very little to go on. And yet with the very, very little they have to go on, they respond wholesale and quickly. They're really nothing like this believer who knows the scriptures so well. They have such little revelation and yet such amazing receptivity. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown and they respond. And something happens that I want to point out to you. At this point, Jonah shrinks in the historical narrative. And the Ninevites become the focus. Dorothy Sayers made a comment that I think is really apropos. She said, the sin of our times is the sin that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive because there is nothing for which it will die. This is a good description of Jonah's passivity and indifference. A man who was big in his own eyes now becomes small in the historical text. See, the biggest object in Jonah's eyes has been Jonah. And so he shrinks throughout the rest of the narrative. But God is doing something gracious to Jonah. He's trying to expand his horizon to people around him and to God above him. This shocking response by the Ninevites to such a succinct message becomes even more amazing as the verses continue because the people, not only do they respond, but, but the, the response moves everywhere, in fact, to the king itself. So let's finish verse 5. The people believe God. They call for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. If you're wondering what sackcloth is, it's, it's a garment normally made out of like black goat's hair. It's meant to be very uncomfortable. People would wear it as a cultural way to show their discomfort with their own sinfulness. They would put ashes on themselves to indicate their sorrow. It, it was a way to outwardly demonstrate the sincerity of turning and humility in your own heart, turning from wrong and receiving the wisdom of what's right through repentance. But verse 6 strikes me. The word reached the king of Nineveh. How? Not from Jonah. The word has now so spread through the Ninevites that the Ninevites are the ones who are spreading the word to fellow Ninevites all the way to their king, probably a provincial governor of Nineveh and the surrounding community. Just an encouragement here. God is fully capable of spreading the good, necessary news, even a news of judgment, so that it affects those in positions of power, even though it's proclaimed from ordinary people. 
It's exactly what happens here in verse 6. And now notice how the king responds. Verse 6, he arose from his throne, removed his robe, and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. Those three things are very important. By arising from his throne and removing his robe and covering himself, he is stepping down from his position of power and prominence and putting himself in a position of humility and abasement, an admission of failure and sin. Just, just a word here. I, I'm burdened about, maybe it'll be helpful to you. We, we often pray for those who are in positions of political power, or those who make policies, and it's good for us to pray for that. And surely we want God to put the kind of policies that are good for human flourishing in place, because that's good for everybody. But, but be careful, friend, that when you pray for those, like we're supposed to in 1 Timothy 2, kings, leaders, those in positions of authority, that you're not actually subtly praying that your positions will be put in place rather than their positions. What we're actually supposed to be praying is that they will come to know the God that they need to know. See, it's not about him leaving his throne so that we can now put in our policies. It's about him leaving his throne so that he can know the God above him. This is what's happening now to the king. This is what happens when the gospel goes from the greatest to the least. The least. Verse 7, now the king, who was the highest goes the lowest, and the only policy he has is that we all need to respond to this God. Verse 7, he issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Wholesale, entirety of recognition of the worthiness of judgment that they have accrued. But what follows from this belief is the turning that I referred to at the beginning. Verse 8, But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Very intensive words to say they're calling desperately. They're praying with the bottoms of their heart, the fullness of their lungs. And let everyone turn from his evil way. This is the key word, turn. To turn from what God calls wrong, to confess that it is wrong, and to turn to him. It's the key word of the passage. Let everyone turn from his evil way and the violence that is in his hands. Nineveh's violence, as I shared in Sermon 1, was notorious geographically in terms of how they treated other people, but it was also notorious in terms of their own community, how they would oppress those that they figured beneath them, the poor, the needy in their own community. And now their turning goes to hope in what God will do. See in verse 9, and the word turn comes up again. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Well, this is the key question that I left hanging in the introduction. Who needs to turn? We all need to turn. To whom do we need to turn? We need to turn to God. Why do we need to turn? Because we do have selfish, stubborn sin. But what will happen if we will turn? God turns his justice away from us and gives us mercy as grace. There are two things that are theologically really important in verse 9 and 10, and and we'll spend a little bit on both. The first is, of course, the word turn, and the next is the word relent. 
What does it mean that God relents? Let's save relent until after verse 10, because verse 10, we'll talk about relent again. But for right now, turn, verse 9. I want to make sure we're really clear on this. Martin Luther, one of his key theses, uh, when he nailed those to the door, was that the entire Christian life is that of turning or repentance. I think he's understanding the Bible rightly. Let me explain this to you, Christian. All of us, the moment we hear that we are sinners and that we need a Savior, if we will turn from our sin and trust in Jesus, the Bible says we are saved. That's what the Bible calls conversion, the initial turning. But Christian, our entire life is turning. It's not just the beginning. You you spend your whole lifetime confessing, yes, Lord, that is wrong. Let me turn from it by your grace and turn back to you. Yes, Lord, that is wrong. Let me turn from it by your grace and turn back to you. Turning's not just the initiation, it's the lifetime. So this turning is, is really everything in our life. And when we turn, God turns. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Of course, this is the contrast of the book. Who will turn? What does it take for people to turn? Did they turn enough, we might ask? One author is worth quoting here, Smith and Page. They write, The turning of the Ninevites demonstrate at least a recognition of their condition before the Lord. God's compassionate heart is always sensitive to those who cry out for mercy. And this truth is here in verse 10. The passage speaks of the incredible mercy of God's heart, his incredible love. And here one finds irrefutable evidence that God wishes not for the destruction of the sinner, but for the redemption and reconciliation of his entire creation. Even if their repentance is not thorough, God's hand of judgment was still removed, at least temporarily, to give this frail flower of searching sufficient time to bloom. God's turning is not because they've turned well enough. It's because in his mercy and grace, he can relent because of a provision he's made elsewhere to cover their sin. So let's talk now the word relent. Maybe it's troubling to you. What does this word relent mean? Can God change his mind? How does that make sense? Well, if you'll write down this scripture, it'll help you a lot. Jeremiah 18, 6 through 8 gives a very simple answer to why God relents when people turn. It's really, really straightforward. Jeremiah 18, 6 through 8. Let's begin in verse 7. If at any time, God says, if at any time I declare a nation that I will pluck it up and break it down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do it. So God makes exceedingly clear That these are warnings, not eternal decrees, but warnings with built-in conditions. If you will turn, then the judgment that we deserve is turned away, and instead mercy is placed on us. The Hebrew word nahum or nahum is, is the word for turn or relent or repent or change. Samuel puts it very simple in 1 Samuel 15, 29. God, the glory of Israel, will not regret or relent or turn because he is not a man that he should change his mind. So no, God, of course, doesn't change his mind, but God can have built-in conditions into his warnings. If we will turn, he turns away 
the judgment that we are deserving of. When he does this, it's still righteous. How would be the question. I mean, if you're in court and a judge turns a blind eye, that's a bad thing. How can God turn away his judgment just because people have turned from their sin? I mean, it's not like the Ninevites can cancel out all the wrongs they've done. All the thousands of people that they've murdered aren't coming back. There's no way they can make that right. So the turning must not be meritorious. It must not be that the turning means that now I've done enough, that I deserve salvation. No, that's not what the turning is. The turning means that God turns his justice away from us and gives mercy to us because he turns his justice on his own son. He turns the righteous condemnation of our sin on an innocent substitute named Jesus. Jesus suffers on the cross. God turns away from Jesus because that's the consequence our sins deserve. God is only ethically able to turn our judgment away and give us mercy because our judgment has fallen on another in our place. The salvation then is through faith in a substitute who takes our judgment and therefore can extend us grace. And the shock of this passage is that God waits for repentance, delays judgment, and provides himself in the place. God's patience is to give us time to repent, to give us delay. God is so much more patient than we are. I now have a fifth child. We're in the baby mode again. And just last night, he cried through the night. And I woke up this morning and saw him at the high chair and said, Benjamin, it's time for you to move out. <laughs> you've, you've had a great run, you know. Uh, I, I don't have the patience the Lord has. I don't have this like long delay of, I'm going to give you time. So praise the Lord for it. Now, did you catch the word that the king used when he said, who knows? Maybe we won't perish. You recognize that word? For God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. See, the patience of God is to give us time to trust in the son of God who perishes so that we don't have to, who takes the judgment we deserve. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world through him might be saved. God is giving you time. He's giving Raleigh time. He's giving people all around us time so that they will hear and believe. There's an urgency to it. But there's a grace in the opportunity. So let me put those together for you right now. Brother, sister, like Jonah, perhaps God has been trying to get a hold of you about a specific area. Will you turn today? Will you turn? Because if you turn, he's ready. Friend who've been visiting, I know some of you have said this to me after services. I'm not a Christian. I've been enjoying coming here. Thank you for the things you're saying. I'm still thinking about them. I'm so glad you're coming. I'm glad you're wrestling through those things. I want to encourage you, though, at some point, you need to turn. And you need to trust in Christ. He has given you sufficient revelation to believe. The Ninevites got five words. 
You know what Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 12? He said this in verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment day and condemn this generation. Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now behold, something greater than Jonah is here. See, they had Jesus and they didn't think it was enough. All the evidence we need is here. Christ has come. He has died. He has risen. He calls you to believe in him. Turn and trust. See, the turning and the trusting is a grace that's amazing. In January of 1907, a revival broke out at a Bible conference in the capital of North Korea, of all places. Those who are at the conference are already Christians. They're already believers. That's why they're at a Christian conference. But one of the speakers got up, one of the preachers told them that they needed to turn from their hatred of the Japanese. And the Korean Christians that had accepted the gospel had still kept hating the Japanese because of conflict that they had had with them over the past and a moral superiority they believed they had over them. But at the conference, the grace of God moved from action to affection and they repented. They turned from their hatred of their Japanese neighbors. The newspapers record people coming home returning stolen effects, reaching out to Japanese people in their community, worship services being filled with new power, the gospel spreading like wildfire. And many historians have attempted to come up with political or economic reasons that maybe that happened. But there's a very simple reason that happened, and it happened because God gave repentance. 2 Timothy 2.25 says that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but he must correct his opponents in a spirit of gentleness so that God might grant them repentance or turning. Turning is a gift of God. Turning is something God does. Can I ask you, what's the greatest miracle in the book of Jonah? It's not the fish. It's chapter 3. The greatest miracle is when Nineveh (laughs) believes in God. The storm, the fish, the boat are fine. The miracle is people turning to God for however long it lasts. Let me tie together four conclusions that have been sort of floating in today's passage and tie them together thematically. Here's the first one. God's startling mercy on those who turn. See, Pharaoh was so stubborn, he wouldn't turn. And so he received judgment. He was given abundant revelation, 10 plagues. Here, this king is given minimal revelation, but he turns and he receives mercy. Has your heart been more like Pharaoh's stubbornness or more like this king's softness? See, only Jesus can save us from God's wrath. And so all of us this morning, either you reject Jesus and you're facing delayed judgment or you flee to Jesus and you are covered in the blood. Nineveh's king could only say, who knows? But you know what we can say today? Romans 10, 13. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's a guarantee from God. Number two, the power of God's word. I want to remind us this morning, the word of God does the work of God. God's messengers cannot manipulate the outcome. 
Instead, just be a simple and clear messenger and let God give the outcome. Number three, the third theme I think we see in today's passage is God's persistent grace. God was so gracious to the Ninevites, but don't you see how gracious he was to Jonah to get him there? He could have replaced him with someone else, but he didn't. He first kept working in Jonah before he overthrew an entire city with grace and receptivity. It's the same now. Romans 2, 4 says, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. God runs after sinners, even stubborn ones. Now the fourth big theme from today. God's pursuing grace should actually compel us to respond quickly, not slowly. God's pursuing grace should compel us to respond quickly, not slowly. Jonah responds slowly, but the Ninevites respond quickly, and they're the better for it. Let me illustrate it this way. In intimate relationships like marriage, perhaps you've noticed over time that if one of you is upset with the other one and you kind of refuse to acknowledge it, you can lose a lot of time kind of treating each other differently. But when someone finally breaks and says, I I was wrong, I'm sorry, and they turn back, you think, man, I wasted all that time. I mean, Jonah's wasted so much time. Respond quickly. And then you'll see what God will do. There's a principle here, though, that I want to make sure we don't miss. Did you know that greater revelation does not necessarily mean greater receptivity? Jonah knew the Bible. Some of you in your Bibles in Jonah 2, when he's crying out, when he's praying, you see all these cross references because he's praying words from the Psalms. Jonah prays like a kid who grew up in church. He uses biblical phrases. He knows the Bible really, really well. It just hasn't affected him. The Ninevites know God's revelation very, very minimally, and it maximally affects them. More knowledge doesn't necessarily mean more humility. God corrects the Pharisees about this in John 5. He says, you search and study the scriptures, but you refuse to come to me. That stubbornness is what must be broken. In the early 1800s, I think there's a true story of how all these themes come together. The fear of death, the breaking of stubbornness, how to turn in the life of Adoniram Judson. In the early 1800s, he was a student at what is now Brown University. And after he graduated at the top of his class, actually, he went to New York City. He was hoping to be an author, to be a writer. And while he was in college, he had left what he now thought of as the primitive notions of God, mainly through his friendship with a man named Jacob Eames, who was a devout secularist who had really challenged the faith that Judson had kind of loosely held. Well, in New York... Things kind of flamed out, and so Judson decided to throw in the towel and go back home. This is the early 1800s. He graduated in 1806, and so on his, on his way back, he has to stop somewhere at a hotel. And so he stops there through the night. And throughout the night, he can't sleep because the wall that he's sharing a, a room with, the person in the next room, is coughing and hacking the entire evening. It's terrible. So Judson says to himself, man, that poor guy in the next room. I wonder what's happening with him. So the, the next morning, as Judson checks out, sort of on a whim, he says to the person at the desk, 
whatever happened to that poor old man who was coughing all night long? And the checkout person says, well, actually, he, he died. And Judson is sort of shaken by this. And for a reason that doesn't really make much sense, he says, well, what, what was the man's name? And the receptionist says, well, his name was Jacob Eames. And Judson realizes the person who was coughing all night who passed away was his college friend who had led him away from any sort of belief in a God. And when Judson comes back home, he realizes that life is short. It does end. And if you don't turn and trust, there is no eternal hope or security. And he gives his life to Christ in 1808, saying this, At this moment, I devoutly gave my soul to God in dedication. The rest of the story, if you know it, is Judson becomes one of the most important missionaries in the history of the world. That moment when he realizes the impending nature of judgment and the seriousness of life and what it would mean to turn to God, everything changes. And so it can, and so it has. And so it's recorded for us in Jonah 3. This is what happens when we turn. Let's close in prayer this morning. God, you give grace to undeserved persons from a position without obligation. You have no obligation to turn away your judgment from us. You have no obligation to extend mercy to us because we are guilty. And surely you have no obligation to bear the consequences of our sin on your own son. But this is the good news of the gospel. And so when the message comes, yet 40 days, and you will be overthrown, we have a very similar message today. You know not tomorrow. You cannot boast of it. Your life could be over, and you're going to reap everything that you've sown. And so perhaps somebody today needs to do what Adoniram Judson did and realize my life could be over tomorrow. It is time for me to give my life to Christ to turn to him and to trust in him and to realize that's what it's all about. And then you will turn away your judgment and you will extend mercy. Help people to be saved this morning. But then, Lord, help us as Christians to realize turning is an entire lifetime. And let us not be stubborn like Jonah, but to turn quickly, to have soft hearts that are pliable, humble, and teachable. And then, Lord, I, I truly pray that you will send and commission people from this congregation and many other gospel-believing congregations because I believe you care about Raleigh deeply. And as people are packed in this place, may the gospel go forth abundantly and give us hope. Who knows? God may revive this city. In Christ I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.